Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. The weekend is upon us, and Walters is a great spot to gather for brunch. From chicken and waffles to Walters breakfast tacos, Walters menu has something for everyone. On top of that, for only $20, enjoy bottomless drinks, including mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and old-time lagers. Walk on over to Walters for Game 2 of the NBA Finals. Tip at 8 p.m. on Sunday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the wind of the 1-1. Swing and a drive to deep left. Down the line. This may go, and it is gone. Goodbye. A home run for Nelson Cruz. The 1-2 from Miner. This one is hit hard. Down the left field line. Back toward the corner. And it is gone. A home run for Lane Thomas. Run in the second. Now three here in the third for a 4-2 lead. Soto hits one. Deep to right field. It is way back. And it is gone. Swing and a fastball hit in the air to right center field. Deep. Senzel going back. Looking up. And it is gone. Goodbye. The second home run of the game for Lane Thomas. The 3-2 pitch to Thomas. Hit high and far, deep to left field, and it is way out of here. Lane Thomas hit that one to Akron. The third home run of the night for the Lane train. He chugs around the bases again, and the Nationals lead it 7-2. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, June 4th. 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. A Nats four-game losing streak during which they got outscored 36-6, now over. The Nats on Friday night did what they have done in so many of their so few wins this season, and that has hit really well. An 8-5 win at the Cincinnati Reds in Game 2 of a four-game series between the Two worst teams in the National League. The Nats now in NL worst, 19-35. and 35. A mere one percentage point behind the Reds as the race is on. Uh, but we on Friday night had a lot of positive things going on with the Nats. We had a three-home run game for Lane Thomas. We had Juan Soto and Nelson Cruz each home run. Yeah, the Nats hit five home runs on Friday night. We had a terrific start for Josiah Gray. We had perhaps the final minor league rehab assignment start for Steven Strasburg in his return from thoracic outlet syndrome. Mark, there have been a lot of bad days for the Nats this season. Friday was a good day. This is one of the better ones they've had. Really, when you put it all together, uh, a night when the offense, as we've seen very often, when they win, they put together a lot of runs and they did it 
believe it or not, with the home run. <laughs> five of them. It wasn't just Lane Thomas. Five homers. You had almost an afterthought that Soto and Cruz both homered in this game. That's great news. You had Josiah Gray, after a very shaky start to the game, clamp down after that and pitch quite well, uh, one of his better starts of the season. You had Steven Strasburg, of course, doing what he did at AAA. And yeah, I think for the first time in a while, I, I mean, I know the results don't matter that much, but boy, it feels like they needed this one. And not just winning the game, but sort of how they did it. And the way that everything played out over the course of the day, this is one that they can sort of sit back, take a sigh of relief and be like, okay, we had a good day. They do actually happen every once in a while around here. We'll get to Steve Strasburg coming up. I, I think if you're talking about like the most significant thing on Friday night in the game, it probably was Josiah Gray, but it's hard not to start with a guy who hit three home runs in a game. And Lane Thomas did just that on Friday night, three for five with three home runs and four RBI. This was the seventh time that an Nats player has hit at least three home runs in a game since the franchise moved to Washington, D.C. I mean, look, Great American Ballpark is a notorious bandbox of a ballpark. It was pretty funny. Thomas's first home run went just 349 feet for StatCast. That is what you call a bandbox, but a home run is a home run, and Thomas hit three of them on Friday night. He, in a four-run Nats third, had a one-out, two-run homer near the left field foul pole on a 1-2 pitch. That was the 349-foot shot. He, in a Nats one-run fifth, had a one-out full count opposite field homer to right center field. He, in a Nats two-run seventh, had a leadoff full count homer on a towering shot to left field. Uh, we know that it has not been a great season for Lane Thomas so far. It's interesting, though, in the various ongoing configurations of Davey Martinez's lineup, when Caper Ruiz is not the starting catcher and Davey has Juan Soto batting third, it is Lane Thomas who's batting second, even with the season that he's having. And boy, uh, did he hit like a number two batter and then some on Friday night. Some game for Lane Thomas. Yeah, and he said he's going to hit again uh, second on Saturday. <laughs> surprise, surprise. We know how Davey operates. You know, I think against lefties, he does like that. We talked about it, uh, I think, back in Milwaukee a couple weeks ago when he was starting to heat up a little bit and Davey kind of hinted that he might use him at the top of the lineup against lefties and he did it for a couple of games. Well, that didn't go great, but uh, Cesar Hernandez doing good at the leadoff spot. But once he moves Soto to third, he's looking for a number two hitter and you can understand why if Cabert Ruiz isn't starting, um, obviously Riley Adams is going to hit up there. So Lane Thomas isn't a bad choice and he's made the most of these opportunities. But I just, I got to go through the list here of the uh, three homer games in Nats history. And <laughs> remember the old Sesame Street game? One of these is not like the other. Here's the first six to do it in Nationals history. Alfonso Soriano, Adam Dunn, Ryan Zimmerman, Bryce Harper, Anthony Rendon, Kyle Schwarber. And now to that list, you add Lane Thomas. And this is nothing against Lane, who, as we know, has been way more than they ever could have expected him to be at the time of that trade last year and has done some good things and may yet prove to be uh, an important piece for them moving forward. But he's not the prototypical three-homer guy that you would predict <laughs> this from. And it, like, if I had said to you, if you had no idea who had done it previously, but I said, if I told you six players in Nationals history have hit three homers in a game, just off the top of your head, who would you guess they'd be? You'd probably pick a good number of those six names. Those are the classic power hitters in Nationals history. And now Lane Thomas is alongside them. I think that's pretty cool when a guy like that can do it. Yeah, it really speaks to what he is, which is a talented person. He was regarded as a talented guy with the St. Louis Cardinals. It's not like he was just some 
you know, jabroni guy who they had never really had faith in, but they had soured on him. It was looking like they were going to let him go. And so they threw him to the Nats to get John Lester. And he ended up being really good for the Nats last season. Like we said, so far this season, overall, not too good. But, you know, he has these games. He has, you know, this sensational performance on Friday night. And it makes you feel like, you know, maybe what we saw last year is not exactly who he is, but he can be an approximation of that person. I mean, Lane Thomas last season, 45 games, 206 plate appearances with the Nats, OPS of 853. He was one of their more consistent, productive batters down the stretch of the season. And a big thing with this season, obviously, was, well, was that real or was that a mirage? And so far, you have to say it was more mirage than it was reality. But, you know, we're still early enough into this season where that narrative can change. And, you know, it's hard to not be good and hit three home runs. There's a certain level of, of ability that, that is required to do something like that. And he did that on Friday night. So good for him. And you just want to see him be consistent this year. We just have not seen that with him. He's had a few good games, but you know, you want to see like a two or three week run during which he's good. We have not had that yet with Lane Thomas this season. We haven't. Maybe we'll start to see him play a little bit more regularly, which could help uh, at least get a look at him. Because as we've noted, Yadiel Hernandez has cooled off a lot at the plate. Uh, you know, there was a point there where it was kind of like you had to have Yadiel in the lineup every day, but you don't necessarily feel that way anymore. So I think it's all right to put Lane out there and just see how he does for a week, 10 days, whatever it might be. What I liked about this one was a couple of things. One, he hit him off three different pitchers. So it's not like he just had one guy figured out and, and owned him. And it was two to left field. And then one, the most impressive one to me was the one to right center, the way he stuck the bat out and drove the pitch to right center field with power. So it wasn't just him doing it one way against one pitcher. He kind of showed the full gamut here in this game. I like that. And it does show you that, yes, there is something there. His first at bat, he ripped the ball to center field at 105 miles an hour. And his last at bat when, of course, he's absolutely trying to hit his fourth homer of the game, he flies out to center. So he does have this ability. He may not think of him as this classic power hitter, but he does have the ability to hit the ball hard. And when he gets it in the air, it can travel. Let's see what he can do. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing him a little bit more regularly. I think he's earned that. I know numbers aren't great, but the situation they're in, what do you have to lose? Give him a shot. See what you have. I would not complain about that, especially with, like you said, Yadiel Hernandez having cooled off pretty significantly. So Lane Thomas had three home runs on Friday night. Nelson Cruz had a home run on Friday night. In fact, it was Nelson who got the home run barrage for the Nats going. Uh, he, in a one-run second, had a leadoff homer to left field, ended up going three for five with a solo homer and two more singles. Uh, Cruz in the top of the fifth, a one-out opposite field single to right center field. And then I think maybe my favorite moment of the night, that Nats two-run seventh, Nelson Cruz, a one-out infield single on a slow dribbler to the left side of the infield. So this makes it two consecutive games now in which one of the Nats' burly sluggers has had an infield single on an ultra-slow roller. Josh Bell on Thursday night in the top of the ninth had a two-out infield single on a super-slow roller on a 1-2 pitch. And then Nelson Cruz on Friday night in that two-run seventh, a one-out infield single on a slow dribbler. Uh, to the left side of the infield. We in the seventh inning had Lane Thomas hitting his third homer of the night and Nelson Cruz with an infield single. You talk about things that don't belong here. The inverse of that should have been the case. Like maybe Lane Thomas has the infield single and Nelson Cruz hits his third homer of the night. No, the opposite was the case. You never know what's going to happen in a baseball game. That captures that 
mantra perfectly, I feel like. You just stole my line. That's exactly what I was going to say. You never know what you're going to see when you show up at the ballpark. A little dribbler for a single for Nelson Cruz, who had three hits on the night. The batting average is up to 240. I mean, look, he is starting to do some things. I like that the home run, you know, he pulled it. That was the the home run we're used to seeing from him. He's had a lot of hits to the opposite field here recently as he started to get hot. That's a good sign if he's pulling it. And of course, Juan Soto homering as well. And I know they didn't do much on Thursday night, but Josh Bell did homer. And so in the last, you know, 24 plus hours, you've had Soto, Cruz, and Bell all hit home runs. They'd all been going through some pretty significant droughts. Let's see if they can continue that. But we know, look, it's great when Lane Thomas hits three homers, but for this lineup to really operate on a consistent basis, it's got to come from Soto, Cruz, and Bell. So maybe this is a little bit of a sign. Maybe Cincinnati is what they needed to get themselves going. Yeah. I mean, again, I want to see him do it in a place other than Great American Ballpark because this is a stadium in which you can hit home runs. But yes, at this point, you take what you can get. The Nats have not hit home runs this season. So, uh, you know, let's not complain about where the Nats are hitting the homers. It's so interesting with Nelson Cruz. You know, he ended up having a pretty good month of May. Batting average for the month of 318, on base percentage for the month 379, even the slugging 459. It's not terrible. Uh, but his numbers for the season are still so bad because his April was so bad. And so like he's doing what Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber had to do last year, which is crawl out of a super deep hole that he dug himself in with this like wretched start to the season. So, you know, I feel like with Nelson Cruz, the numbers for the season are going to look bad for a while, maybe even for the duration of the season. Who knows? But he has been better lately. And, you know, there's still another level we know that he can get to and hopefully he does get to that level. But I'd say for I don't know what three, maybe four weeks now, he's been a better hitter. We're seeing the Nelson Cruz more and more who we anticipated seeing when the Nats signed him. It's so funny how our minds work because when somebody gets off to, we always remember April and we kind of in our head have that narrative of this is the kind of season the guy's having. And so when you're great in April and then you cool off, you forget about the cooling off part and you say, well, he was great in April. He's having a great season. And when the guy's awful in April, it takes so long, like you said, to get it back that you sort of don't realize how good they've been. As uh, Ryan Zimmerman and so many others would used to say, they play 162 for a reason. And at the end of the season, the stats are going to get to where they're supposed to be, the kind of player, the kind of hitter that you are, especially for established players like this. So let's see where it gets in the end for him and for all these other guys. But you can't say at this point that Nelson Cruz has been everything the Nats wanted him to be because obviously he has not. But he hasn't been nearly as bad as we've sort of in our minds think he's been terrible in April, but he has come together here and ultimately he may do for them what they needed him to do and then potentially help them in the long run by bringing somebody else in return come the end of July. And honestly, that's what matters. Like, it's not about what his stats end up being for this year. It's just about come August 2nd, is he playing well enough and is he appealing enough to a contending team to where the Nats can get something back for him? So, you know, whether his OPS for the season is 900 or 700, it doesn't matter. It's just at that moment in time, where is he at and does somebody want him? And if that's the case, then fine. Who cares what he did in April? You know, I, I think that's kind of the comforting thing about all of this. It really doesn't matter. Like with, with a guy like Cruz specifically, you're trying to pawn him off on somebody else to get something back for him. And where he's at in July and August is what matters here. So that's really what I, I think like with Cruz, stay healthy, Okay. And just be in a good place come like mid to late July. And if that's the case, then the Nats should be able uh, to get something back for him. Uh, Juan Soto hit the Nats' other home run 
on Friday night. So the Nats in that 4-1 third hit three home runs. I mean, the Nats have gone like weeks this season without hitting three homers. In one inning on Friday night, the Nats hit three homers. Again, Great American Ballpark is a lovely place. Uh, And Juan Soto Homer, boy, does he need this. Uh, Soto, you know, he'll he'll have a good game and then he'll go right back to, to struggling right now. He had a good game on Friday night. We'll see if this vaults him to anything or if he goes back to struggling over these next few games. But Soto on Friday night, one for four, a solo homer and a walk. He in the four-run third had a one-out solo homer to right center field. He and uh, Lane Thomas uh, going back-to-back in that inning. Um, and that was a an impressive shot. That was a 400-foot shot per stat cast. That was a shot per stat cast that had an exit velocity of 110 miles per hour. So that was not necessarily a function of the ballpark. That was a big boy home run. And then he drew a one out four pitch walk in the top of the fifth inning. So, you know, we we see it like you just said, Bell homers on Thursday night, Cruz and Soto homer on Friday night. This is what we're anticipating coming into the season. These guys, consecutive nights or in the same game, perhaps, you know, all coming through with big shots. And we've seen that here uh, to at least some degree so far in this series. Right. And that was a legitimate one. Didn't matter where he was hitting it in. That was going to be a home run everywhere. And again, like Lane Thomas in his first at bat, Juan Soto's first at bat drove it to the warning track to the opposite field. So you kind of had a sense that he was feeling good at the plate. It's another night when he homers and walks. That's good. Obviously not all the way back yet. It's got a long way to go for that. But you know, when you mentioned that the the key with Nelson Cruz is that you're just trying to get him to a place that you can get something of value for him, I would say that's number one. But I also think number two is his impact on Soto. That was the other reason that they signed him. What he could do for Juan in the clubhouse as a mentor and all that, and also what he could do as a guy in the lineup with him, in theory, providing some protection, helping Juan get more opportunities. So if Nelson Cruz is hitting and hitting for power, it's only going to make it better for Juan Soto. Even if we haven't seen that quite yet in the long run, I do think that will make a difference. So I think that is another side piece of the value of having Nelson Cruz on this team. So the Nats on Friday night, eight runs on 12 hits and two walks, but a lot of extra base hits. This is what we have been begging for. Five home runs to go with two doubles on Friday night. Victor Robles had a double and Luis Garcia had a double. More on Luis coming up momentarily. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you. And that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. 
And now Gray ready to go into the windup. 2-2 to Stevenson on the way. Slider, strike three called. Locked him up. The inning is over. The other big positive for the Nats on Friday night was Josiah Gray. And, you know, we've talked about uh, Joe Ross, and I've done the thing of, you know, spin the wheel, make the deal. There's an element of that with Josiah Gray. There are some games in which he looks great. There are other games in which he doesn't look so good. There are stretches in games in which he looks great, and then he doesn't look so good. And, you know, you kind of have almost like this two-faced thing with Josiah Gray. So, you know, it it really does require with him, like, taking a step back and surveying it from 30,000 feet. Well, on Friday night, Josiah Gray got off to a very concerning start, but he ended up having one of his better outings on the season. Uh, Two runs, one earned in six innings, nine strikeouts. He ended up only giving up just two hits, a homer and a single, did issue three walks and a wild pitch. Uh, He, interestingly, over his 91 pitches, only threw 51 strikes, 51 strikes versus 40 balls, but ultimately, hard to complain about two runs, one earned in six innings, with nine strikeouts. Now, the concerning start was him giving up another home run and in the bottom of the first inning. So it made you say to yourself, oh boy, here we go again. Is this going to be one of these multi-homer outings for Josiah Gray in terms of giving up home runs? Uh, Bottom of the first, so a batter reaches base, Brandon Drury, on another defensive miscue by Luis Garcia at shortstop. Um, He had a few shaky moments on Thursday night, including an actual error. And then he, on Friday night, commits a throwing error on a one-out full-count grounder by Brandon Drury. Uh, Garcia on a slow roller. He, like, shuffled his feet multiple times, maybe more than he needed to, and then made another one of these throws that pulled Josh Bell off first base. Boy, Josh Bell, he gets a workout on these Luis Garcia throws. He is constantly having to come off of first base. So Drury gets on base, and then Josiah Gray gives up a one-out first pitch, two-run homer, to Tommy Pham, and this play was a story in and of itself because Victor Robles nearly made a spectacular home run saving catch. In fact, he had the ball in his glove. It was right there. The pitch swung on, hit high in the air to center field deep. Robles going back to the warning track. He's there. He's at the wall. He leaps, and he can't get it. Off his glove and over the wall, out of the grassy berm in center field. A home run for Tommy Pham could not make the catch. I mean, you can't really fault him. He made a great effort, nearly pulled off a sensational play, did not. So Fam ends up getting a home run, and the Nats are down 2 nothing. and we say, here we go again with Josiah Gray. But no, we did not go again. He ended up pitching well, nine strikeouts, and at the end of the game, I think you feel good about what we saw from Josiah Gray. You do, and, and there are times when the results matter, and maybe the process didn't all look great, to get there, but in the end, he did what he needed to do. And I think there's something to be said for that. Obviously, he had really good stuff in this game to get nine strikeouts in six innings. Now, the command was also off, so it was erratic. Uh, the walks, like you mentioned, a lot of deep counts, you know, get ahead 0-2 and end up 2-2, 3-2. So, some longer at-bats, and that's why he couldn't go beyond the sixth inning. So, there's still some refining there, obviously, but his slider, I think, was really on point. He had seven swings and misses on that one. A lot of his strikeouts came on the slider. The curveball did not throw it as much, only threw it 14 times, but he threw nine of them for strikes and got five swings and misses on that one. So I feel like the way this works with him is this. If he can throw those breaking balls in the relative vicinity of the strike zone, they don't get hit as long as he's not hanging it right over the heart of the plate. But if he can make it look like it's going to be a strike... Those two pitches, especially because he throws both of them, there are very few guys who throw both the slider and the curveball. 
Those are really hard pitches to hit. The problem that he runs into, especially when he gets ahead in the count, is he'll try to throw one of those and he'll try to be so good at it, the pitch comes out of his hand and you can tell immediately he's got no chance and he bounces it or it's well out of the zone. I feel like that's where he gets into trouble and that's why the pitch counts get high. If he can just refine that to be more consistent in how he throws those breaking balls and makes them look hittable, I think he's going to have a chance to be really successful. That that to me is like the next big development for him. But again, you go two runs in six innings, fantastic, no complaints at all about that. And I'll be honest, I thought when he gave up the home run right after the air, I'm thinking, oh boy, this is one of those where maybe he, um, you know, he's facing the team that drafted him. I remember when he faced the Dodgers, he admitted that he had a little bit too much emotion. You wondered, was that in the back of his mind uh, with this one? Thankfully, it wasn't. He settled down. He was very good after that. But I admit I was a little bit worried the way that first inning went for him. Well, I think you have to just because the home run problem is undeniable. I mean, like, you know, Yohan Adone has his problem with the walks and Josiah Gray has his problem with home runs. And at this point, I mean, it's got to be in his mind. Josiah Gray now over 128 innings in his major league career has given up 33 home runs. That's a lot of home runs. And he's had games this season in which his outings have been almost ruined by just giving up the home runs. So it was good that that was it. And, you know, the rest of the outing, he was able uh, to not give up any runs. Also, it's good to see him get back to striking guys out. He was doing that earlier in the year. It kind of sort of gotten away from it lately. You know, some of it has to do with, I think, what you just outlined. But Josiah Gray gets himself, again, nine strikeouts in six innings. He's averaging 9.89 strikeouts per nine innings this season. And the fact that he does legitimately seem to be a strikeout pitcher is encouraging, that this isn't going to be you know, an Aaron Sanchez or an Eric Fetty situation where, you know, he's pitching to contact and you got to hope that the defense is good and that uh, the variance of the batted ball doesn't doom him. Like, no, he's got swing and miss stuff. And we're seeing that. We saw it last year. We're seeing it, I think, by and large this season. So good to see that. And also good that, you know, that little rut that he was in here lately, especially off the start to the Dodgers, that maybe that was just a one or two star thing as opposed to him going into that funk like he went into last year where like for, I forget what it was, maybe three, four, five stars. He was bad. He was really bad. If this season, he you know, he's bad, but the bad is like for a start or two and then he's back to being good. I think that's good. What you don't want is like a month, six weeks of like every time he goes out there, you, you want to cover your eyes. That's what you don't want. And that's not what we have here with Josiah Gray. No, you're right. And last year, remember, it was kind of three different phases that we saw. The first one was very good. Second one was really bad. And then the third one to finish the year was really good. He has been able to spread out the bad ones a little bit more this time instead of uh, bunching them all together like that in a row. I want to go back to what you said about him being the strikeout pitcher. I think that's really important. And I was thinking about this tonight watching the game. We have and others have as well since he got here said, he kind of reminds us of Jordan Zimmerman a little bit and the you know, maturity and competitiveness and came from a smaller college. And just as we're trying to equate this current rebuild to the last one, we tend to want to think of Cavalli as being like Strasburg, maybe Josiah Gray is like Jordan Zimmerman. There are qualities about him that I think are similar, but here's where it is different. Jordan Zimmerman was not a strikeout pitcher. He had his moments, but really he was uh, a command guy, get weak contact, low pitch counts. And Josiah is not that. He is a strikeout pitcher. Now, that can be an advantage. It's certainly in the state of the game today, it's much harder to be successful the way Jordan Zimmerman did it uh, a decade ago. So I think that's a good thing. But I do think there's some things that he can get better at in keeping the pitch count down, keeping the uh, individual at bats shorter, and trying to put away hitters when he has a chance to uh, early in the count. But 
Ultimately, I like the fact that he is proving he can be a strikeout pitcher because I think in 2022 and beyond, it's really hard to be successful uh, in the big leagues without having that ability. Yeah, it's uh, you can do it, but you're advised to take a different path because it's just your margin for error is just so slim if you're not striking guys out. And the fact that he can strike guys out uh, is a very good thing. We'll get to Steven Strasburg uh, in a moment. I do want to hit, though, on what went on with the Nationals bullpen on Friday. So we had more roster maneuvering for the Nats with the bullpen on Friday afternoon. Josh Rogers now is on the 10-day injured list, a left shoulder impingement. You know, he's not looked good lately. Perhaps this helps to explain why he gave up that big three-run homer to Kyle Farmer in the game on Thursday night. Andres Machado was back. He got recalled from AAA Rochester. And then with the Nats bullpen and this 8-5 win at the Reds on Friday night, so some good and then some not so good, really just from Victor Arano. But uh, Carl Edwards Jr., a scoreless bottom of the seventh. Arano in the bottom of the eighth faced four batters, got just one out. He began his outing by giving up back-to-back singles and a wild pitch, then gave up a one-out three-run homer to Joey Votto to cut the Nats' lead to 8-5. Game kind of, you know, was pseudo-close because of what happened with Arano in that eighth. But Kyle Finnegan came into the game, faced three batters, got the final two outs in that eighth inning, and then Tanner Rainey tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth inning uh, to get the save. So Finnegan and Rainey got some work. It was actually needed work with what happened with Arano. Good to see Finnegan and Rainey get the job done. And, you know, it feels like over the last few days, we've had more transactions with Nationals relievers than we had had like the entire season up until this point. There's been a lot going on in terms of guys coming and going uh, with that Nats bullpen. Yeah. And it started with, of course, the rain out in the doubleheader that forced them to get some fresh arms. And then the very short Eric Fetty start and domino effect of all these things. And it's funny, Fetty said that night, um, that kind of start can have a lasting effect, not just for a day or two, but maybe even a week. And maybe you're seeing a little bit of combination of all that. Uh, I don't know a lot about what's going on with Rogers. Uh, apparently, he's going to get an MRI on Saturday and find out they're calling it an impingement in his shoulders. That sounds like a nerve issue. We'll see. Now, he was the only lefty they had in there. And it does lead me to believe if you're reading between the lines here, Davey has suggested that Evan Lee's going to stay, but not necessarily start. That Maybe he could be available out of the bullpen. Well, it would be helpful to have a lefty out there. And so maybe that's his next role. The next time we see him is actually taking over the Josh Rogers role uh, as the single lefty in the bullpen. So we'll see how that plays out, but I would not be surprised if that's the case. And I want to go back just a couple things about uh, the relievers in this game. Arano, four batters face. You said he got three of them out. The one guy he got out, Tommy Pham, was on the biggest meatball of a slider right over the plate that for some reason Pham just took. He just watched it go by. That, that had three run homer written all over it. Instead, it was the next batter, Votto, who did it. So that was a really rough outing for Arano. And I know he got the save. But I thought that Rainey was pretty shaky in this game. He starts off with a three-run lead, falls behind the first hitter 3-0 and ends up walking him. This is a number eight hitter, Lopez. We've seen Rainey do this where he walks not the big time hitters, but the bottom of the order hitters and gets himself into trouble because of that. It didn't cost him this time, but he set himself up for failure by walking the leadoff hitter there and then a line out to center, a line out to right. There was some solid contact off him. I thought he was pretty fortunate to get through this game um, without making it even more uh, scary than it already was. Yeah, walks have been a bit of a thing for Rainey this year. 16 and a third inning, six walks that he's issued, but he does get the save. He does have an ERA at 220, but there's obviously more to a reliever, especially than just his ERA. So yeah, uh, that was not Rainey at his best, but 
He does end up accomplishing ultimately what he was uh, supposed to go out there and do. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. He's not running. The pitch is off speed and a cold strike three. The changeup got Moreno looking much to his chagrin. Though no runs, one hit, the only one Strasburg has given up. All right, so let's get to Steven Strasburg here. So Strasburg on Friday night made his third minor league rehab assignment start of this run here in the comeback from the thoracic outlet syndrome. And he, for a second consecutive start, was good in terms of the results. Now, we'll see how he feels after the start. But Strasburg on Friday night in a 2-1 home win for the AAA Rochester Red Wings over the Boston Bisons. Six scoreless innings, four strikeouts versus one walk and one hit, 83 pitches, 50 strikes versus 33 balls. Each of his first two outings in this minor league rehab assignment were for Loe Fredericksburg. Remember, he was shaky, very shaky in terms of results in the first start, much better in the second start. And now he was really good in this third start, and this time at the highest minor league level, AAA. So with the caveat of we got to see how he feels does it feel to you like this is it and that Steven Strasburg's next start will be at the major league level? I've got to believe that if you're Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez, you are saying right now, yeah, we want him pitching for us next time. He doesn't need any more. Now, like you said, it depends really more than anything on how Strasburg feels about it. Now, I, I saw a few of the highlights 
from it. And I got to say, it looked like classic Steven Strasburg to me. The fastball had life on it. He threw a curveball to somebody that had a huge 12 to 6 break that was outstanding. Uh, and we know from his last outing that the changeup was really good as well. If he's doing all that, it's not just about the results, but it's the way that he looks when he's pitching. That looked to me, and a small snippet, of course, but that looked to me like the real Steven Strasburg. That didn't look like a guy getting away with inferior stuff, okay? So I think that's a good sign. By all accounts, up to this point, he has said he has felt very good, and that, of course, is the most important thing. So he's going to hopefully join them back in Cincinnati on Saturday. They'll have a discussion. He'll throw his bullpen session. I'm sure they'll wait to make any official designation of anything. But unless there was some red flag that he felt or noticed, or if he just deep down says, you know, I'd really like to go one more and just make sure, or, you know, try to get up to closer to 100 pitches, you know, they're not in a win now position. So you're not going to say no to him. No, we need you now. No, of course. You want to make this move when you know he is fully comfortable. But based on what we've seen in the progression of these three starts and how he's reportedly felt after the first two and how it looked like he was doing in this one, um, it's hard to imagine that he needs much else at this point. And even if it means, look, he comes back, obviously pitching in a big league game is different. I would not be surprised if they say, hey, we're going to hold you to five innings and 75 pitches or something like that. That's fine. You'll take that. They don't need to extend him. You know, He doesn't need to be in full-on regular season mode. Um, but if he's feeling good and he's got command of his stuff and he's ready for it, I say, yes, activate him, have him pitch in Miami at the end of the middle of next week before the end of the road trip. And let's go. Let's see what he can do. And uh, it's not going to make a difference in how this team finishes this year, but it, I think it makes a huge difference in the bigger picture. If somehow Steven Strasburg can actually be a part of this over the next several years, that changes a lot of stuff in how they view where they're going here in 2023 and 2024. Yeah, I mean, it really is a game changer. If he can come back and even just be like a number three starter, pitch at that level, that's a really big deal for this team. And, you know, I'm not usually big on this stuff, but I think like psychologically for the fan base, you know, the Strasburg thing has been such a downer and so depressing because he has barely pitched the last two years. He was so great in October of 2019. He gets this contract, and the contract right now looks like the single worst contract, maybe in all of pro sports. Like, that's not being uh, dramatic and saying something like that. And so, you know, his decline, right, has coincided precisely with the decline of the Nats. So if he comes back and pitches well, I feel like it does kind of give you, like, okay, you know, all is not lost. There is hope in Nats land if Steven Strasburg can come back from this thing. You know, I think it's still really hard to be bullish. And, you know, with him, it's like he could be back, he could make a start or two, and then he's not feeling well again, or something else pops up. I mean, remember with Steven Strasburg, what's working against him is A, he's coming back from a serious thing in thoracic outlet syndrome. B, he has a substantial injury history, so you don't know what else is going to pop up. And C, he's now well into his 30s. So even if he had always been durable, his body is aging and there's enough mileage on his arm now to where you don't know what is going to pop up. So, like, there's a lot that is working against him. This is such an uphill climb. But of course you battle and of course you hope. And man, if he can end up making, say, 10, 12, 15 starts this year, stay healthy, pitch reasonably well, you take that and you run with it as a Nats fan. Yeah. Look, as you just outlined very well, you can never be 100% sure with him. There's always the chance that the next time he pitches, something goes wrong and all of a sudden he's walking off the mound the second inning and we're starting all over again. But it's been a long time since there was real optimism about him. I mean, and think about how he went from 
the absolute peak of his career, winning the World Series MVP to just everything that's happened since. It's like every, his whole career, it's like it fell off a table. There, it wasn't some kind of gradual decline. It was instantaneous how he went from the highest of highs to now the lowest of lows. And what a story it would be if he does come back and pitch effectively for them for a while. And he is the single most important person, I think, in the organization in terms of their success has been, and I think can continue to be. And it's not fair to put this all on him. And obviously, lots of other stuff happened the last two years. But Steven Strasburg's health, I would say, is the number one reason that the team went from a perennial contender to now rebuilding. We talked about this last summer. So many things went wrong in July, and they decided they needed to sell off. They weren't going to win. But to me, once they knew Strasburg needed this surgery, and they knew that now he wasn't just out for 2021, but that 2022 was a huge question mark, that to me was the important factor that led them to trade Trey Turner and admit, we're not trying to win anymore. We need to start over. Strasburg matters more than anybody else in this organization. The stat, I've, I've shared it before. It's crazy. And again, there's a lot of other factors here, but I think it's pretty amazing that this is true. In his career, when he has made 24 or more starts in a season, the Nationals have made the playoffs five out of six times. When he hasn't made 24 starts, they're 0 for 6 making the playoffs. It'll be 0 for 7 this year. Okay. A lot of other stuff matters, but Steven Strasburg being healthy enough to pitch the majority of the season has mattered more than anything else for this organization for more than a decade. Yeah. And you think about the chronology of everything 2009, first round number one overall pick. He was the first big draft pick by this franchise in terms of them becoming good. Ryan Zimmerman was a big pick, but the Strasburg pick kind of felt like the beginning of them finally turning the corner. His major league debut was the single biggest regular season moment for this franchise upon moving to DC prior to the team getting good. So it's like he is kind of the, you know, the starting point for a lot of the good stuff from the Nats, a lot of the success from the Nats. And uh, we'll see if there's perhaps more good stuff to come. Uh, you can always email the Nats Chat Podcast, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Connor Ferris has written us with Josh Rogers on the IL. Could Evan Lee be up with the big league club for at least the next two weeks? If I had to guess, they'll use him as a starter until Strasburg returns and then put Lee into the pen until other pitchers return from injury. Yeah, it just may be that Strasburg is about uh, to finally make his major league regular season debut here. I mean, as things line up, Eric Fetty will pitch game three at the Reds on Saturday. Patrick Corbin game four at the Reds on Sunday. Off day on Monday. And then Lee's turn in the rotation would be on Tuesday night for game one of a three-game series at the Miami Marlins. So, you know, you, you mentioned the Marlins series, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, somewhere in there, you might be able to slot in Strasburg. Uh, and then after that comes a lengthy homestand. So if you do want to save his return for Nationals Park, you can have ample opportunity once uh, you're done with that uh, series at the Marlins. Uh, I want to get your take on this. So there was big news in the National League East on Friday. The Philadelphia Phillies fired manager Joe Girardi. Uh, boy, the Phillies, to me, they made such a mistake in getting rid of Gabe Kapler when you look at what he's done with San Francisco. And, you know, people in Philly, they didn't like the analytics and they didn't like Kapler's new agey approach. Well, it seems to be working out well with the Giants. But anyway, that's a Phillies problem. But Joe Girardi's last season as Yankees manager was 2017, which was Dusty Baker's last season as Nats manager. Girardi was available after that 2017 season. There was some talk of the Nats potentially going after Joe Girardi. It's interesting, too. He's from the Chicago area. Mike Rizzo is from the Chicago area. 
Obviously, Davey Martinez got the job. Obviously, it worked out pretty well with the Nats winning a World Series in 2019. But did the Nats ever seriously consider hiring Girardi as manager in that 2017-2018 offseason? I didn't get the sense that he was a super strong candidate that year. He was in the mix, one of the names. You know when he actually, they really wanted him is going way back when, 2007. So when he was let go by the Marlins, despite having, I think he won manager of the year, and there was a whole issue with him and Jeffrey Laurie and you know the Marlins were a disaster back then as they continue to be, he leaves and they made a push for him then. And he sat out a year, I think at least one, maybe two years before he then went to the Yankees. He didn't want to go to a franchise that at that point was still obviously rebuilding. And in the back of his mind, I think a lot of people knew he was waiting out Joe Torre to retire and that that would maybe be the spot for him. And it worked out wonderfully for him there in the end. I did not get the sense that this time around, they were as high on him for a variety of different reasons. Remember, Bud Black was actually their first choice. (laughs) Uh, They didn't get that done in the end. They ended up with Dusty. I don't think that uh, Girardi was really on their radar at that point. If you also remember last year, remember the Max Scherzer game in Philly where he uh, Joe Girardi asked them to check him for the sticky stuff and all that? Remember Mike Rizzo's comments after after that? Uh, He's a con artist. He didn't like Girardi. He said some pretty nasty things that made me think there's some history there that maybe they aren't the best of friends, despite both being Chicago guys. So maybe that's another indication that they were never all that high on him. But in terms of what happened with the Phillies, I don't blame Girardi for it, but I will say I didn't always think that he necessarily was the right fit there. And that organization, you know, they're going on what they haven't made the playoffs since 2011. That's a long time. It's one of the longest droughts actually in the majors right now for missing the playoffs. They spend a lot of money on a lot of big bats. They still don't have pitching. They still can't play defense. They have not had a good farm system. I think they are a prime example of how not to try to build a winning team after going through a down cycle. They felt the pressure to try to win immediately, spend a lot of money, maybe not wisely, and now look where they are. Yeah. They have had like one foot in, one foot out with various approaches. They have had a really hard time establishing a bullpen. Like we talk about the Nats and the hard time they've had consistently having good bullpens. The Phillies have been worse at that. And the defense has been a consistent problem. To your point, I mean, is it Joe Girardi's fault that the Phillies under have underachieved in recent seasons? No. But, you know, this thing of, well, we'll get rid of Kapler and bring in Girardi and that'll fix things. Like, no, that didn't fix anything. I remember talking about this on the radio. Girardi had a really good run with the Yankees. And he did the thing that's so hard to do in sports, which is be the guy after the guy. Joe Torre is out. Girardi takes over. And Girardi wins a World Series in his second season as Yankees manager. 2009 ends up lasting for years as Yankees manager and has a good bit of success, certainly in the regular season, makes a bunch of postseasons. And I felt like Girardi for that Nats team at that time, right, couldn't get over the hump in the postseason with Dusty Baker. I thought Girardi uh, would have made some sense. But look, like I said, you can't quibble with the way that things worked out. And, uh, you know, Girardi is he's in his late 50s. He'll manage again. And who knows? Maybe at some point he winds up managing the Nats. But uh, I always thought that that was interesting. He was out there after that 2017 season. And the Nats instead went with someone who had not been a major league manager uh, before in Davey Martinez. Well, also on Friday, we had the beginning of the NCAA Baseball Championship, which is the NCAA tournament, the regionals. And there are a lot of local slash pseudo local teams 
that are in this thing this year, including the Maryland Terrapins. Our own Tim Shovers was out in College Park, Maryland, and he witnessed number 15 Maryland smashing, and I mean smashing, Long Island University 23-2 was the final in that game. But you also have heavy Virginia representation in the NCAA Baseball Championship. Virginia is in this thing. The Cavaliers beat Coastal Carolina on Friday 7-2. VCU is in this thing. VCU uh, beat Georgia on Friday 8-1. And Virginia Tech might be the best team out of all of these teams. As we tape this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast, the number four Hokies are up on Wright State 15-8. You know, I know that college baseball isn't for everyone, but the way that the NCAA determines its champion in baseball, I think it's pretty cool with these regionals and the College World Series. And there is, I think, like increasing interest in college baseball. And in this area particularly, Maryland, I mean, when I went to Maryland, Maryland baseball was not good at all. It has improved greatly. Virginia is good. Virginia Tech is good. VCU is good. So it's nice to have this. Like in this area, you actually have legitimate, viable college baseball programs. And I'm a little surprised that historically it hasn't necessarily been. Uh, I know it's not super warm weather, but it's not bad, you know, compared to this isn't really the Northeast or the Midwest where it's tough to, you know, play in February, March, April, and, and you know, those schools have a much harder time. You know, Virginia was the first one here after the Zimmerman years. They became a national powerhouse, won a title. It's great to see Virginia Tech doing as well. And Maryland, you know, it's funny that moving out of the ACC, which is is a baseball powerhouse to the Big Ten, which is not, and I can tell you, watched plenty of Big Ten baseball in my time in college, and maybe it's been good for them, uh, and maybe they are able to recruit a little bit better. The other thing I wonder, I have no evidence of this, just occurs to me. Now the Nationals have been here for, what, 17 years. You have a whole generation of kids growing up with baseball in town. My son plays Little League. It's a big deal around here. Like I feel like youth baseball is a big deal. And maybe historically, it wasn't thought of as highly. I don't we think of it as, as a, a big uh, basketball and football area on the amateur level. But maybe baseball is becoming more of that. And maybe kids who grow up in this area who are good at baseball don't have to look south, but they can actually look right here and stay relatively close to home. And maybe that bodes well in the long run for uh, the status of baseball in the mid-Atlantic. It's not just at the professional level, but there can be a trickle-down effect of all that. Yeah. I mean, there's a pretty healthy set of minor league teams in this region as well. So, you know, all of that helps. I mean, it doesn't hurt, you know, all of that helps to kind of build the culture of baseball in this region. No, no doubt about that. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. That's Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. Shout out to Ray Mitten, who was at Great American Ballpark on Friday night, proudly wearing his red Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. The only thing better than wearing a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt to Nationals Park is wearing a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt to a Nats road game. I think that's my favorite thing. We got people traveling wearing the t-shirt. I I think they actually maybe charge you more to go to those games at those opposing ballparks. But still, it's great to get those photos. We put it out on our Twitter feed at Nats underscore chat. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats chat podcast. We continue to welcome your memories, your stories of that 2012 Nats National League East Championship team, as of course this season is the 10-year anniversary of that season. And so we leave you right now with this voice memo from one of our favorites, the Rally Mullet, his memories of the 2012 Nats. 
Hey, what's up, Nat Chat Podcast guys? How you doing? This is the Rally Mullet, and I wanted to give to you my 2012 memories. April 28th, I remember that Bryce Harper was called up against the Dodgers. There was a series that he ran into the wall a few times, and a bat hit him in the head a few times. I think they won a few out of there. I'm not sure. I remember in May, me and a buddy as a Baltimore fan got together to see him play on a Sunday, sold out tickets to the place. So we had to buy a standing room only. Strasburg pitched. Strasburg hit his first home run there. Harper had a couple RBIs. And we ended up playing the Braves, and, and they, they were about to sweep when I went to a game uh, in August where they had Chipper Jones night. And the Nats ran into a buzzsaw. They could not score, and they didn't sweep them. But still, they were up by enough games to to win the division that year. And then turned out like the the dates lined up where the Nats played games three and four, where they played against Carpenter, the uh, Edwin Jackson, and against Chris Carpenter. Somehow or another, they lost that game. And of course, the next game, which was the best game. Uh, up to up to my date uh, at that point was the earthquake, and I just remember sitting exactly in the uh, left field stands, and that whole at bat where he was t- fouling off pitch after pitch. I believe it was like thirteen pitches, and every pitch we kind of were like cheering whether or not it would be a home run, you know, or something, or something would have or strike out because it was you know had two strikes on him, and next you know he connects on one, it just drills it out over our heads and everyone just crazy and absolutely in unison screamed and made this like earthquake <laughs> and it was it was an amazing time all of us thought we had won the world series <laughs> at that point uh but anyways it was amazing and i appreciate you guys having the podcast and asking the question take care